Welcome to episode number 11 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. Pretty much every glider pilot on planet Earth is wondering when they'll be able to fly again. Unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic will likely keep us grounded for the foreseeable future. But that doesn't mean we can't use our downtime to listen to The Thermal Podcast and go online to learn new things, or brush up on your final glide techniques, or maybe read a book about gliding and weather. That way, we'll be good to go once the pandemic has passed. In this episode of The Thermal, we hear from contest manager Richard Owen on how his team of volunteers managed to keep this year's Seniors Contest in Florida going amid the pandemic. We also have an interview about competitive online gliding, because let's face it, we can't do the real thing. We talked to Daniel Sazin about chasing thermals on the computer screen. Mark Maumer is a longtime glider pilot and engineer, and is largely responsible for glider winglet design. He just won a major award for his work. On Gliding Club Confidential, Katrin Senna tells us about her gliding club in the Black Forest. And hear from the man behind the Sunseeker, a unique solar-powered motor glider. March 2020 marks the 75th anniversary of the last combat glider operation of World War II. We talked to the author of a new book about an American combat glider group. That and a whole lot more on episode number 11 of The Thermal. pandemic has hit hard and fast. For many glider pilots around the world, it's now a waiting game to see when the hangar doors will open again. Some pilots, however, have been able to get some flying in. The annual seniors contest that's held at Seminole Lake Glider Port in Florida was underway as the pandemic started to hit. Richard Owen was one of the competitors. He was also the contest manager and is the vice president of Seminole Lake Glider Port. Richard is also a member of the Soaring Association of America's Board of Directors. I've reached Richard at the Seminole Lake Glider Port. Hello, Richard. Thanks for taking the time to chat. The seniors' contest was in full swing when the COVID-19 crisis started. How did you handle that as contest manager? Well, we decided not to have pilots' meetings, and we dispersed all the information on the Internet and also through the uh, WhatsApp application on your telephone. Right. So in the morning at the same time that you do the pilots meeting, you would get a, a briefing on your telephone and it would tell you everything that you would find out during a, a pilots meeting. Mm-hmm. Things that occurred during the day, who the winner was, what the winner uh, thought about the flight and where they thought they made a, a big difference in how they ended up on the podium. So food service was a little bit tough. Uh, the more we thought about it, uh, we started going into the points where everybody would get together. So what we ended up doing was uh, when you came into the hangar, our volunteers had gloves on and they handed you your uh, plate, your utensils and napkins that were uh, taken out of a box that they came in. And uh, all of our volunteers wore gloves. As this contest was progressing, so was the COVID epidemic. Were you worried about having to cancel the contest at any point? We were at the very beginning of the uh, COVID-19 coming out in Florida. So in the beginning, we didn't think that the contest would be uh, canceled. 
Uh, we started on a Friday, but then on Monday, the governor of Florida said that we shouldn't have any meetings greater than 50 people. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we have 60 pilots and the seniors plus crew, volunteers, and, and our staff. So we had a, a substantially larger group of people than 50. And uh, since we we're in the middle of it, we decided that we had uh, provisions that would keep everybody as safe as possible. And we were a closed community and we decided to, to keep continuing. Right. However, right. We, did, we did ask our pilots on the Monday night dinner if they wanted to cancel all of the dinners because that was the only point where we were all together at one time. Even though we disinfected the chairs and tables before the, the meal and after every meal, um, we still didn't know what the consensus was. The vast majority of the people still wanted to do the dinners and the hangers but we also made provisions so that people could take their meal away from the hangar and eat in their RV. And we also refunded the people their money that uh, didn't want to eat with the group at all. So uh, we tried to cater to exactly what their desires were. Did some of the competitors leave early, you know, trying to get home while they still could? Yes. I mean, you know, if you take a look at the name of the contest, the seniors, all of our, our pilots or the vast majority of them, were over 55 years old uh, and some were in their 80s. We also had some uh, some people that had immune deficiencies and they decided to withdraw from the contest, which no, absolutely nobody could blame them. Mm-hmm. So we, we did have uh, 14 people withdraw from the contest either in the very beginning or as the contest progressed. We also had people that were from California that their family was out on the West Coast, and it's a four-day drive with your glider. Yeah. So yeah. they decided that head home when things in California started getting bad also. Right. And uh, you, you can't fault anybody uh, with those decisions. How did this year's contest work out in the end? I understand uh, along with being the contest manager, you were also a competitor. Right. I work with uh, Miss Chris Carter. She was our co-contest manager. So while I was flying, Chris was the person that that held the reins and kept everything on track. She also supervised all of our our volunteers and made sure they were well taken care of. Mm -hmm. And uh, it worked out really well. Uh, It was a little bit hectic in the beginning of the contest. But towards the end, we, we kind of got into a, a rhythm and everything worked out fine. So how did you wind up doing in the contest and what were the conditions like? Well, the conditions were absolutely great. I mean, every day we had uh, queue. Uh, we had sometimes in the neighborhood of five to six knots of lift. The average, I'd say, for the whole contest was uh, at least four knots of lift, getting to five, sometimes 6,000 feet. We... Nice. Uh, during the uh, five days of the days that we flew contest flights, uh, we had over 110 uh, 300 kilometer flights flown by the contestants. So all uh, every day, I think I flew 300k every day except for one, and uh, I was happy I ended up finishing second overall. I just had one bad day that I finished in 16th, but I kind of had a complete system failure. So I had no nav, no varios, just a map and looking outside the front window. Very old so, school. Uh, 
you, you, you can still do things for the old people. We know yeah. how to read that. Well, congratulations. Second place is pretty darn good. What uh, makes this Seniors Contest such a special event? Well, this was our 30th anniversary of the Seniors, and it started as a uh, kind of a soaring safari. The uh, It was called the... Uh, the uh, Seniors Summer Festival National, and it was started by uh, a person by the name of Tom Knopf, a very famous glider pilot, lives up in Pennsylvania. And the owner at the glider port at the time was Canute Kinsley. And they decided to have a group of uh, fellows to come down and just have a fun contest. Originally, the rules were, were more in fun. If you won the day and you beat people that were older than you, then they subtracted one point from your score. <laughs> if if you won a national championship, you uh, got subtracted one point for every national that you won. And at the time, uh, at, at the beginning of the seniors, Carl Streetick was the number one pilot in the U.S., and they made the minimum age for entering the seniors one year older than Carl Streeting. <laughs> I like that thinking. Uh, they, they had a great time. I mean, when, when you sat there and looked at it, they had the uh, the pilots meeting in the office of Seminole Lake Glider Port, which is just like a large living room. It was very casual. Everybody had a lot of fun. But over the years, it's gotten to be a, a very, very, very competitive contest. Uh, last, uh, I think it was two years ago, Virginia Thompson, who uh, lives up in Canada and uh, stays at the Sosa Soaring Club for yeah, most I, I of the summertime. Well. But Virginia and I were teamed up for seven years running the seniors. We were uh, discussing uh, uh, during the award ceremony, she asked everybody who won a world championship to stand up at the banquet. And uh, Doug Jacobs, who uh, won the world championship in Rieti, Italy in the 80s, stood up. And then she asked, if you've ever won a national championship, please stand up. And a bunch more people stood up. And then she went, how many people here have won a regional championship? And by the time everybody was standing up, there were very, very few people sitting down. Uh-huh. For, the, for this year, the top 12 pilots ranking-wise all won a national championship in the last three years. So we have a, a very, very uh, good group of people, very competitive group of people. So it's always uh, a tough contest to do well in. So how are things at uh, Seminole Lake now? I understand there's still some limited gliding going on. Seminole Lake is, is still open for business. However, we're only flying private ships. So if you want to bring your ship out and uh, go fly, we will do that. But you have to have either yourself or your crew will have to do the hooking up. So we're not uh, sending our employees out there. So basically, uh, you pull your uh, glider out of the trailer, put it out on the line, and then our tow plane will come down and, and tow you. And then we'll do all the payments electronically so that you don't even have to come into the office. Uh, we still have our office manager there answering the telephone, but we're not doing any rides or any training. So we're not using any of our aircraft except for the tow plane. But we still are providing tow services. 
And we still have a lot of folks that are left over from the seniors that decided to stay. Mm -hmm. We have one couple that are from upstate New York, and uh, their town was actually quarantined, and they couldn't return. Wow. So they had to have one place to go. And they've been having a lot of fun. He's been flying every day, and she's been kind of being the crew. (laughs) Well, I guess the key is to be able to do this safely and what the way you just described it does sound safe. Uh, it's a question of how long it can go on for, right, with the way things are changing at the moment. Well, we're lucky because Seminole Lake Gliderport is in a very rural section of Florida, and the county that it's in, Lake County, doesn't have very many coronavirus uh, uh, infectees right now. Mm-hmm. So we've been very lucky. We're not a hot spot, uh, and we are kind of out in the middle of, uh, of nowhere. Right. So that in itself has been a, uh, a blessing. Uh, the tow pilot actually lives on the airport. So, uh, you know, he doesn't have to commute. So he's not coming in from uh, an area in Orlando that is a, has a higher degree of infections. So, I mean, we're pretty much a self-contained unit. Right. right. But uh, and, and it's not bad. Everybody's still having fun in it. It's kind of a nice way to self-quarantine for six hours as you fly over Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm lucky you guys. Uh, I'm worried that I'm not going to be flying at all this year, maybe in the fall, but we'll see how that shakes down. Now, you're also a board member of the Soaring Society of America. What's what's the talk on the contest front from the uh, society's point of view? We uh, had an email that went around to everybody uh, on the contest committee and we're discussing, uh, you know, there we have states that are stay-at-home where they've been ordered to pretty much not leave your home unless you're part of an essential business or a first responder. And then there are states where uh, they're a lot more lenient because the number of coronavirus cases uh, is still kind of small. So you have to look at it. It's a state-by-state and location within the state that's going to determine uh, whether or not a contest is going to be flown. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that between now and June uh, that we'd have any contests. Region 5 North, which is in uh, Perry, South Carolina, has been uh, canceled already. Uh, There was a a wave camp, cross-country camp, that was going to be flown in Tennessee. That's been canceled so all the events up until about the 1st of June have already been canceled. And we're looking at the data as we go on to make determinations uh, with the contest organizers whether or not a contest should be flown or not. Right. It's totally up to the contest organizer, but uh, we, we kind of have to see what happens in the next uh, few weeks. Now, is the SSA recommending any particular advice to, to member clubs during the COVID crisis? Are they suggesting to shut down or what, what, or no training? Is there anything coming out of the SSA on that point of view? We, we support all of the clubs with information, but all of the clubs make their own decisions because there are, some might be in a location where they have very few coronavirus cases. They don't do a lot of training. They do more private ships than anything else. But most of the clubs that do flight training uh, have been shut down. Right. Uh, because obviously, you know, the more close contact you have between instructors and students 
and in a club environment, getting together after flying uh, gives you more risk of getting the coronavirus or to pass it to other people. So pretty much every club that does training has been shut down. Right. Well, Rich, it's it's been enlightening speaking to you. Thank you very much to you know put me in the know about the the seniors contest and everything that went on. I I hope you get some flying in before uh, things shut down even further. Well, I think as long as the cases in Lake County uh, are very low, that we'll continue to do private ships. But uh, we've already planned to not do any training for the next couple of months. Stay safe. Thank you very much. And we'll talk to you later. Maybe you can come on down after this is all done and have a flight with us. I would love to. Thank you very much and take care. You're more than welcome. Bye now. Goodbye now. Bye. Richard Owens spoke to me from the Seminole Lake Glider Port in Florida. Imagine you're flying your relatively modern glider. Now look out at a wingtip. If you have a winglet, my next guest probably had something to do with its design. Glider pilot Mark Maumer is a professor of aerospace engineering in Penn State's College of Engineering. His winglet designs are on hundreds of production sailplanes around the world. Mark's lifetime of contributions to the field of aerospace is being recognized by the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, the AIAA, with the 2020 AIAA Aerodynamics Award. I've reached Mark at his home in Lamont, Pennsylvania. So, Mark, first of all, congratulations on the award and and this this whole prestigious uh, award. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. I owe it to all my great students and friends. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we get into your design work and and the relationship with gliders, I'm afraid we're going to have to talk a little bit about COVID-19. What kind of impact is it having uh, for you and the faculty and students at Penn State? Well, it's it's pretty major. Um, Penn State is completely closed and locked down. Uh, Started out, I thought it would be a great time to catch up on wind tunnel experiments, but we're not allowed in the buildings now. So we're conducting lectures online with Zoom. Uh, that's been going on. This is the start of the second week. It still seems difficult to do. Um, when it works, I've got the hang of it. But so far, every time I've run a class, which I'm on my fourth one today, uh, different part of the Internet connection didn't work. So it's been very uh, it's had to be improvised. I've got one hundred and thirty seven students in one class. And they've been very helpful in helping me get the uh, technology to work. Uh, and they seem pretty patient. Faculty seems to be coping reasonably well, but uh, it's difficult. It really is. It's all about adapting now, I think, eh? Yeah. Um, and it would be easier to adapt had we had more time to do it. And uh, I'll try to dry run something that works perfectly the night before and then the day of class one component of it doesn't work so that's a bit frustrating right. and um i've or- and the university has been very helpful about you can order whatever you need to make this work so i've ordered uh, a document uh, camera so i can do my notes i've tried from writing on a pad to uh, a cam on a whiteboard and what seems to be work best is a camera on a on a 
sheet of paper, which I use like a blackboard okay. and go through my notes that way. And the students seem to like that the best. And they're not shy about telling you what they like and don't like. <laughs> Good. Well, it's got to work for everybody, right? Now, Mark, here in it Canada, uh, the government is asking all universities to drop what they're doing and turn their engineering firepower towards the design and manufacture of critical supplies and, and medical equipment. Has there been any talk of that happening at Penn State? There are a few people who have done that on their own. We have a place called the Applied Research Lab here, which is uh, basically a naval research laboratory that does submarines and torpedoes. And they're trying to do some medical equipment and so forth. But um, we're basically not allowed even to go on campus. Right, right. So right. it'd be difficult to, to engineer or create anything. So we're, we're batting down pretty tight. Mark, and this will be my second weeks of quarantine. So yeah, wow. I guess if I ha don't have it, I pass the exam. <laughs> but so let's switch gears here. You know, the main reason I wanted to talk to you is about this this award that you've won for your your work in in design. Uh, one of the footnotes was you were chosen because of your foundational developments or the work you did in foundational developments in airfoil and wing design. Talk to me about your work and how it relates to gliders. Well, uh, much of the research that gets happens with gliders is done by people who are passionate about gliders, and they try to shoehorn other things they're doing into the into the work of gliders, which uh, been able to do that pretty successfully. Um, but I've been at it for a long time. Uh, we were doing low Reynolds number aerodynamics uh, in airfoils and wings and stuff before other people. Um, uh, model airplane people and glider people mm -hmm. were the people doing it until UAVs came along. There wasn't much funding to do that, so you did it because you were interested and passionate about it. And now with UAVs, there's a lot more uh, activity because there's funding in that area. Right. Um, are so you anyway, working on yeah, are you working on glider UAVs? Uh, no, and and I'm not really doing much on UAVs. It's kind of sneaking into gliders as best I can. Mm -hmm. um, the winglet stuff all came from, uh, was really directed toward the glider movement early, early on. Mm -hmm. And um, that's an interesting one because uh, Karl Heinz Horstmann in Germany had done winglets and, you know, the big guys had done winglets. And basically the notion was, well, they helped the climb, but they hurt the crews. So they never found their way onto production aircraft. And I was contacted by Peter Massick, said, I'm going to do winglets for gliders. You want to help? I said, well, Peter, the best aerodynamicists in the world have done this. It doesn't work. It helps the climb. It hurts the cruise. Well, I'm going to do it. Will you help? And he was so persistent. I finally said, well, what airfoil are you going to use? And, uh, and um, we were ultimately successful with a trial and error flight test program, him in Texas and me in Pennsylvania on the phone uh, at the end of the weekends after he did some flying. And we got into the design space, which is, I understand better now, it's a miracle we did that. Uh, but we did, did some winglets, and they were worked, and people started winning contests. And uh, ultimately, Shemperth became interested, and then the other manufacturers. So, uh, so what, what, was the sweet spot, but what was the sweet spot between cruise and climb? How did you work the design to find that place? Well, um, it's interesting you know, even in the late uh, 20th centuries, you would think that designing a winglet for a glider should be pretty easy, but our tools couldn't do it. And um, 
they just didn't have the fidelity to get in the corners. I think that was the same thing that, that hurt the big guys. They didn't have those tools either. Mm-hmm. So Whitcomb developed the winglets at at, uh, at uh, NASA Langley in the wind tunnel, but didn't get the sweet spot. The beauty of the sailplane stuff is Peter would say, what do I do next? And I would tell him, try this. And uh, he could make those changes and go fly that week weekend. And Sunday night would call me, this is what I found out. And we picked the parameters in the right order that we nailed down the ones that didn't matter first <laughs> and then went after the ones that really mattered last. And it it comes down to things like the uh, – there are a couple of things like sweep and toe angle can do the same thing. So it's easier to, to adjust the toe angle than it is the sweep. So set the sweep and adjust the toe angle. Hmm. Did a lot of this with tufts and, and things, trying to get the uh, winglet to stall about the same time that the main wing did, or a little better, um, and have the tufts all stall at the same time, which means that it's roughly elliptically loaded, which is probably a good thing to do. And so gradually, or relatively quickly, because we could make changes and fly them, uh, we arrived into the design space, which you can't do that with a a, a 787. <laughs> so uh, well, we got a winglet that was working. Speaking of some of the commercial airliners, is there still a bit of a crossover between, say, some of the work you've done uh, on aerodynamic design that has still worked its way into the commercial world? It's hard to say. Um, the guys at, at the companies are friends of mine. And, uh, and of course, we talk. And to be honest, I think they watch the glider community. They don't, they're not advocates or anything, but they watch it. And the fact that Winglets were working on a glider, I, I say this is like the canary in the coal mines. Mm-hmm. The big guys had to notice. They were they were working with Winglets. An example, the the 747-400 had these big Winglets that they said that it didn't help help much, but it didn't hurt. And so it gave the airlines a big place to put their logo, so let's go with it. So they were slowly getting there, but they couldn't do the quick flight test programs that that we were working on. So I think we influenced it. And I know particularly with Airbus, um, those aerodynamicists, a lot of them come from the glider world, from Akaflugs and so forth. So very much in the Airbus world, winglets uh, and gliders, there's crossover. Uh, In fact, we use a lot of the same tools. Um, And I should follow up my earlier discussion. Once we got in the design space and had a successful winglet, um, it still bothered me that we didn't have the tools. And that's when Emanate Soaring contacted me. They wanted to do winglets. And I said, that's okay, but I want to develop the tools to do this. And so you're going to test a lot of winglets that we're going to find out about. And we did get in the, in the tools that work. Um, and basically, we can design a winglet now that, that works as it's supposed to out of the box. Wow. And that's that's pretty important, I think. And we're now using... CFD computational fluid dynamics to check some of the things we eyeballed, like juncture flows and so forth. And we're finding out we did a pretty good job. Wow. <laughs> but CFD allows you to get into these corners and exploit uh, whatever advantages are left. We can we can do things like now, like predict the uh, how much benefit there is from a retractable tailwheel. Uh, and is it worth the weight penalties and so forth and so on? And you can make those trades now, which, you know, even four or five years ago, you couldn't begin to touch. Hmm. Hmm. So speaking of glider design, are, are we reaching the limit of what's possible? Or do you think there's still a lot of room out there for improvement? Uh, 
Um, can I go back a little bit? Sure. <laughs> Sorry. No, absolutely. And, and I'll say there is room for improvement, but it's all connected. And one of the things that we've done is because of my interest in gliders and and uh, low Reynolds numbers aerodynamics, is transition has always been an important uh, area of interest, the transition between a laminar boundary layer and a turbulent boundary layer, which is of critical importance to the sailplane community. But the big guys, the airliners, don't care because their Reynolds numbers are so high that they've been basically flying turbulent flow airfoils since, since transport's been flying. Um, that's changing now, but that more on that later, maybe. Uh, so in any case, uh, it bothered me that CFD completely ignored transition. And there's no way you can do a glider or a UAV or even a BizJet or GA airplane if you don't include transition in the calculations. Mm-hmm. So I had st- students working on that. We now have a transition model that works in CFD, and that's why we're able to use CFD now to uh, – do the flow over a whole glider and get reasonable answers. And that transition model has fallen into the big guys area. So you could say that's uh, that's an area where the gliding interest, while I never would get a grant and say, I want to do transition measurements right, to right, right. study sailplane aerodynamics. Uh, but when it applies to everything else. The research. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And uh, so uh, I would just say, that capability allows us to more critically look at, at at glider design. And I would have to say that in looking at the CFD answers we're getting, we've done a remarkably good job with the tools we had. And it's hard to find any big areas that say, oh, this is going to revolutionize gliding. But, but the little things, we'll pick up a couple points in L over D now and then, and that's improvement. And I think the biggest thing is our ability with loggers to find out the air that the gliders are flying in. Um, and if we better match the glider to its environment, I think there's some gains to be had there. Oh, that's and, interesting. Uh, yeah, some of the uh, example of this is um, with the logger data, you may be familiar with the, particularly the European model of handicapping where there's the horseman cost model of A1, A2, E1, B2 thermals that are strong and narrow or weak and narrow or, you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And they, they go through this with a sailplane and they determine it's uh, sort of at cross-country performance in the average weather conditions. And in designing this three, we looked at these and uh, with the logger data, we found that uh, the 18-meter people or the Arcus people, the 20-meter two-seaters, never used an A1 thermal, which is the weak, narrow thermal. And you go, wow. <laughs> it really changed the way we think about it, although we designed a glider that could still exploit an A1 thermal. Right. I always, my, my opinion is that you don't win contests in strong weather, you lose them in weak weather. So you need to be able to exploit that. But we also found things, we added uh, areas in there for cruising under cloud streets, or uh, Final Glide and things like that. Well, I was just going to say, we interv- or on the show, I interviewed Terry Delore recently, who broke another record in New Zealand flying 17, 30 mm-hmm. kilometers. I can imagine a glider that's designed just for wave conditions. You, you could do that, but uh, nobody could, no one would sell very many. Right. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, if, if my task is design a glider for Uvalde, Texas, uh, for a pilot who weighs 172 pounds, we could design a winner uh, 
that would be hard to beat, but uh, there would only be one of them. Right, right, <laughs> so right, right, right. the manufacturers have to worry about the weather in northern Germany and the weather in Uvalde, Texas. So, um, Mark, tell me a little bit about so your, uh, your, your connection with gliding. I saw a great photo of you flying a Ventus somewhere over, over Germany. What's, uh, t- yeah, that t- tell us me. about your experience. Uh, I just have to say that wasn't me. Ah. <laughs> the uh, whoever wrote that article picked that photo off the net, and uh, I think that's Tilo Holighaus in a in a Ventus three, uh, but it's not me. I wish it was me. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, but you're and, still uh, an experienced glider pilot, right? So tell me a bit about yeah, that. Yeah, I I uh, I've been flying uh, gliders since 1972, and. Uh, Let's see, I've had a Mosquito and an ASW-20. I now have a Ventus 2BX. Um, I don't fly as much as I'd like to. Mm-hmm. I, I flew contests in the past. I still probably would like to. I tell everybody as soon as I can figure out how clear nav works, I'll fly it. I'll race <laughs> again. <laughs> um, it's funny. When you do technology all day at work, the last thing you want to do is bring a lot of technology into your hobby. Right. It's, uh, right. it's funny. Yeah. Well, you can so, get in the vintage so, body yeah, movement. I, I'll learn it. Yeah, yeah, I'll buy a K6 and a, and a whiz wheel. So um, anyway, so yeah, and I'm a flight instructor. I've been in flight instructing since uh, 76, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, been the faculty advisor and promoter of several university flying soaring clubs, uh, one at Princeton and one here. Uh, I was the president of the Illini Glider Club in Illinois when I was a grad student there. So um, yeah, it's been an important part of my life for a long, long time. Hey, so um, what is it about gliding that has kept you hooked your entire life? Wow. Um, I would have to say, um, you know, the test you take when you're young that tells you what you're going to be when you grow up. Yeah. And <laughs> my test said I should be an artist historian, which is diagonal across the origin from engineer. <laughs> yeah, that's just So a bit. I think I approach... I, I approach engineering like an artist, and I think it's the beauty and the majesty of of gliders that has kept me interested. And you know, I've always thought, well, if if your eye likes it, the air likes it. And I've had uh-huh, advisors who've told me that. And and I think it's true. If it's pretty, it the air air likes it. Um, and I've kind of assumed up until. Uh, after I became a professor, well, I thought all engineers were that way, and you kind of find out, no. Um, some of them are just looking at the problem, and, and ugly's okay as long as it works. If I can make make it work and make it pretty, that's that's even better. <laughs> so I think these, these highly swept uh, polyhedral planforms, that's me at work. <laughs> Well, I think we're all enjoying it uh, as glider pilots around the world. Mark, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. And once again, congratulations on what appears to be a a very well-deserved award. So thanks and stay safe. Okay, and you too. Stay healthy. Take care, Mark. Thank you for the interview. Bye-bye. Bye. Professor Mark Maumer spoke to me from Lamont, Pennsylvania. Mark was recently awarded the 2020 American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics Aerodynamics Award. The COVID-19 pandemic is top of mind for most of us. Our normal lives have been turned upside down. 
Here in the Northern Hemisphere, the 2020 gliding season was just getting started. Now, the vast majority of gliding clubs have shut down. It could potentially be many months before things return to normal. In the meantime, glider pilots are being creative. Daniel Sazin is an experienced competition pilot. Most recently, he was a member of the U.S. junior team at the 2019 Worlds. Daniel is also a keen flight simulator pilot who is now one of many pilots flying virtual contests via a program called Condor and the Internet. I've reached Daniel in Brooklyn, New York. Hello, Daniel. Um, Before we get into the world of online racing, how has this pandemic changed your life? What's happening with you at the moment? Well, you know, I'm back with my family in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, basically hunkered down, you know, and, you know, the the stay-at-home orders are here and you know we can't go outside you know my my family's exhibited my parents exhibited some symptoms and you know so they're hunkered down and getting it they're on the mend you know mm-hmm. and so I've, I've been but uh no i mean it's it's been pretty dramatic in the states and certainly new york and uh um you know and we're just trying to kind of work our way through it what, what are you seeing out your door? Are you able to go out and get groceries, or do you guys have enough in the house? I mean, they're, they're talking about your city being the, the next epicenter. Yeah, you know, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're looking for 30,000 ventilators in the next two weeks. You know, it's just a disaster in the making. It's just kind of, um, kind of scary and extraordinary that you're sort of along for the ride, watching and knowing what's going to happen and without any power to stop it, you know, mm-hmm. but as far, you know, as far as getting basic needs and things like that, you know, the, the essential stores are sold, they're all open, but you know, pretty much everyone with any sense is stocked up for a while now, including ourselves. Right. Right. Well, good luck to you and, and everybody else that's listening. So now the, the main reason, of course, I want to talk to you is about getting away from COVID-19 uh, and this online soaring competition that you're you know, competitions that you're part of. So I'm not a flight simulator pilot. Walk me through this. How does it work? What are the basics? Well, uh, so basically we have Condor, uh, which is a fantastic flight simulator. Uh, it, you know, if you have a joystick, maybe pedals, pedals are nice, but they're not hundred percent necessary. You go get the, the sim, uh, and it has a sophisticated weather model. It's got a lot of different kind of gliders. Uh, you got, you can fly, in a lot of different places all around the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you can take that one step further and you can actually use it to uh, race with other pilots. You know, you have this multiplayer mode where people will organize competitions or servers where you can just fly around and you can get together and... So you can literally have a contest in Uvalde and invite pilots from around the world. Is that how that works? Pretty much, I'm not. I'm not 100 sure if they have a scenery for Uvalde right now because in Condor 2, the all of the they had to start from scratch again. The the new sceneries are um, a little bit um, there. You can't use the same sceneries as you did in Condor 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, Condor 1 used to have a scenery there, but you can. Uh, there's a, a list of sceneries you can download from Condor Club all around the world. I mean, like Nephi and Logan, and okay. uh, Harris Hill and Wordsboro and, and the Alps, and I mean it's just amazing you know and uh and yeah i mean you can just pick a scenery uh, make a make a task there and go fly with your uh with your friends so do you do this in real time then everybody starts at the same time roughly is that how that works 
It yeah, basically. So you fly you fly together at the same time. The actual format of the racing changes. So there are Grand Prix races, just mm. like in you know the Grand Prix that yeah. it happens in, around the world, and you can all start exactly at the same time, and it's this one big fur ball. It's really exciting. Um, also, they do the more classic kind of races where you'll have um, a start window, and basically you can pick your time and pick your start. Okay. Okay. Now, how many is there a limit to the number of pilots that can do this for one contest? Or so there are the there's the limit as to how many people can go on the server. So I think that's about sixty four nowadays. Wow, that's um, considerable. Wow. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, the but uh, you, the the actual competitions and the scoring. Right. So when they want to go, when you're ra- when you're trying to get a ranking and things like that. If they happen to max out a server, what they'll do is they just add another one, and well, you know, it's kind of unfortunate if you end up on the second server because you're, you know, you end up flying with a maybe a half dozen, you know, a dozen people. But mm-hmm. you, you know, essentially, it's limitless, and you go off and you race, and then you upload your log. Uh, it's all free, and you put it on Condor Club, and basically your your score is there. And you, and if you race over multiple days, then you actually have a ranking, and you know, someone wins. Now, not a bad way to spend your time if we're all, you know, stuck indoors trying to ride out this COVID uh, scenario. Oh man, you know, you're it, it's it's actually pretty extraordinary. I mean, there, there there's different degrees of uh, of uh, of counter excitement or even bordering an obsession. I mean, I, I have a, a friend in Germany that's getting up at four in the morning to go and fly with the U.S. pilots. You <laughs> know, but it doesn't matter. You know, he's like he's stuck at home anyway for two weeks, so he's just basically flying all the condor he can but uh it's just fantastic i mean you know you're um and and the, the one of the nice things about the you know the the interest and excitement that's going into condor is that there's a lot of people that are kind of gearing their attention toward this so we're having more and more people joining the tasks and the condor itself uh, you know it's fantastic it does a really 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 good job but what it does spectacularly well is flying with other people you know you're when you're going that's really what they designed it to do so when you're flying along you get to see the other gliders all around you you see what they're doing you and you, you know you see the lines that they're taking you see what part of the thermal that's working better or worse and you have a real time kind of uh, assessment of how you how, how you're doing and the the racing is really top notch i hmm. mean yeah now, does Condor also then pop up random thermals? I mean, does the weather change? It's not always the same. So when you're when you're flying it, it's like real life. Oh, the 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 weather model is very sophisticated, uh, and especially with Condor two. I mean, in Condor one, it took me about a thousand hours of flying. <laughs> a thousand before. hours, really? Oh, oh I mean, I've, well, I mean, I've, look, you have to bear in mind. Well, first of all, I was flying the Simpsons two thousand five. Okay. So. Uh, so, and the other thing is, I mean, I used I used to fly it very very actively up, up until a couple of years ago. I've been supporting the tasks and the con, you know, the contest since then, and I've been flying it occasionally, but uh, not to the same degree as I did before. Mm-hmm. But I have, uh, I mean, at, at, at about two thousand hours, I stopped counting. Um, but in the in the in Condor One, it took about a thousand hours before I started kind of figuring out the patterns in the uh, in the weather model. Mm-hmm. Um, in Condor 2, it's even more sophisticated. Now, I mean, I haven't flown it enough to really pick up on it all that much. And the different sceneries uh, also kind of, you know, the, the, the thermal maps respond to it differently. And uh, so the combinations and permutations in the weather are amazing to the point where, you know, it 
you know, you would, you'd have to do an extraordinary amount of flying before you start really figuring out what's kind of what it's doing. Right. And, you know, and basically, you know, you fly just like you would in real life. On, on Monday, I did a, a longer task up in the mountains. And there was this, you know, one point there was a very distinct shift in the, the very distinct cycle. And it's like, well, at this point, you got to pick up, got to get up high in the, up to cloud base, right? And that one decision, like, ended up being like 10 minutes worth of speed, <laughs> like, because mm-hmm. other people didn't downshift in time. Like, and... So does this actually make you a better pilot when you're in the real world in your cockpit? Oh, absolutely. No question about it. Hmm. It, uh, they're... I, you know, and going back to the the bit about you know taking about a thousand hours in Condor One at least to get to the point where you start figuring it out, I, I, to a, it's almost one to one in my opinion the the value of the time that you put into it. Wow. So it yeah you have to take that with a grain of salt because there are certain things that the it certainly does not simulate. So you're you know like you can't just fly at a thousand hours and then pop into a glider and expect to be a thousand hour pilot but if you're flying at the same time in reality if you're going off and you know doing hours and things like that and you're doing condor at the same time then you progress much 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 more rapidly so it gets you in a way of thinking it gets you into aviation mode thinking sailplane racing mode It, it it you're thinking it all the time the decision making is the same i mean mm-hmm. you're the the i mean okay the the thing that changes is that you're not trapped into the damn thing. So you're, uh, you know, you have to, you know, you have to give some allowance and consideration for the safety side of things. And, uh, and you do that in the simulator too. I mean, you, you'd be amazed when things get exciting, you know, you're, I mean, you're, your heart's pumping, you're sweating and, you know, you're, you're really, really, really working hard. But, um, but the, from, especially on the soaring side of things, I mean, the way you approach the sky, it's very, very, very similar. There yeah. are distinctions, there are differences. And, um, you know, and I like to think that, you know, you, you approach flying in the simulator with a certain mindset, and then you fly, approach reality with a certain mindset. And there's a lot of parallels between the two, but they're not one and the same. Um, but I, I, the way I used to think about it is when I didn't, or still do, when I encounter certain situations in reality, um, then I will start drawing on my Condor experience at times to right. help deal with it. So here's a question for you, the hardware side of things. I'm a Mac guy. What what do you need to be able to uh, fly this thing? So Condor operates off of uh, off of PCs and Windows. I mean, you could use Boot Camp on Mac mm-hmm. uh, in order to do it, uh, but that's unfortunately. So, so you need a good computer, preferably a, a PC. Yes. And and and, then... and it doesn't have to be anything extraordinary. Basically, the one of the things that the 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 developers felt pretty strongly about is that it needs to be able to operate off of a typical modern computer. Uh, they have software, they have the requirements and you know on the on their website I don't know them off the top of my head, but any re, any computer that you've gotten in the past, you know, maybe 2 or 3 years ought to be good enough to do it. One final question, talk to me about uh, what do you fly in the real world? Where do you fly and what do you fly? Sure. I uh, fly with Aero Club Albatross. We fly at Blairstown, New Jersey. It's a fantastic soaring site. Got all sorts of weather. Um, you know, our big claim to fame is our ridge. I have recently been given, uh, donated a Duck Hawk glider. It's a 15 meter American built, you know, 50 to 1 glider, and it's kind of a very exciting thing of sorts. Huh. Uh, um, but I've, you know, and I've been flying it, you know, up until very recently. <laughs> um, 
But uh, otherwise, I mean, I I'll, I've flown lots and lots and lots of different gliders. I mean, up until then, I've been you know flying all the club ships and you know and I've been all and basically borrowing stuff and uh, thanks to all sorts of very generous folks in various competitions and. And you were part of the junior team last year. You flew in Hungary. Indeed, yeah, that was a really really fun experience. Well, listen, I hope this COVID nineteen crisis uh, gets over before. Uh, <laughs> too long but it's probably going to take a little while uh, i hope we still get some gliding in this summer thank you very much for speaking to me and uh, we will be in touch sounds great talk to you later bye-bye goodbye daniel sazin is a competition glider pilot both online and in the real world he spoke to me from brooklyn new york <laughs> This month on Gliding Club Confidential, we go to the Black Forest region of Germany and the Flugsportverein Sindelfingen. That's competition pilot Katrin Senna pronouncing the name of her club in German. In English, it's something like the Sindelfingen Gliding Club. Longtime member Katrin Senna recently placed third in the Women's World Gliding Championships. I've reached Katrin in Edlingen, Germany. This interview was recorded prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, Katrin, and thank you for coming back onto the podcast. Talk to me about your club. Where is it located? The Flugsportverein Sindelfingen, that's located in the southwest part of Germany. Um, we are just in a triangle uh, 25 kilometers west of Stuttgart, and nearby is the Black Forest, which is a, a, a big a big forest where the flying conditions and thermal conditions are very good. So the local geography then, it's, it's mostly forested? Is it hilly? What does it look like? It's, it's light, slightly hilly. Um, the biggest mountain in the Black Forest is 1,000 meters um, mean sea level. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the altitude of our airfield is uh, 550 meters above sea level. And uh, 50 kilometers south to us is the Schwäbische Alb. It's a long mountain ridge. Mm -hmm. So the highest point is 1,000 meters, and it's uh, yeah, it's our racing our racing area in south part of Germany for gliding. So is it? Do you do some ridge way flying as well, or is it all just thermals? What is it? Yeah, uh, it's mostly thermals, uh, but we also get some some wave days, some small wave days in the Black Forest, which is also nice but normally we only have uh, thermal mm -hmm. okay issues. now d describe your club to me is it is it a grass strip what what is the airfield like it's a quite small airfield we have we have a 900 meter long grass runway and uh, we mostly operate on winch towing mm -hmm. we have a, a winch with two with two cables on but we do also have aero towing with a with a DR 400 and we also have a motor falke which we can also use as a towing machine yeah and the, and the motor falke is used for cross-country training as well I assume yes cross-country training of course and we also do some towing with a motor falke huh. yeah and huh. our in our club we have 200 members but active uh, gliding members we have about 80 and the club has uh, quite a modern uh, glider park 
So we we start training with the ASK 21. After the pupils go to the ASK 23, mm -hmm. and then we have a discus CS and another discus and LS8 we have, and now we just bought ourselves a second-hand uh, Arcus also, which nice. is quite nice. And then we have a, a yeah a discus 18 meter also. Is it a uh, is it an old gliding club? Does it have a lot of history? <laughs> It, yeah, it started after Second World War, um, or also before it was located in Sindelfingen, our airfield. But then the, the the airport Stuttgart got bigger and bigger, so we had to move out of the control zone. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, I think we, we were founded 70 years ago, the gliding club of Sindelfingen. Yeah. And what what are the annual fees like? What are the What does it cost to get a launch and what are your annual dues? To get a launch, um, a winch launch is eight eight euros at our club, and we pay a quarterly a membership fee of fifty euros. Um, to to get a member of our club, um, um, the adults have to pay four hundred euros to get into the club. So it's a two hundred euros a year. You have you have to pay for the membership and. To rent a glider, the Arcus now, I'm not sure, really sure, but I think around 30 euros an hour, which is not too bad. To yeah, rent that it. sounds very reasonable. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, in Germany, uh, the gliding clubs have a, have a long tradition and um, they are mostly all operated uh, by, by the club and by the people who are not paid for it, so... Everybody, every member of the club, they need to do their duties. So you have two to three weekends of duty in a in a year, where you do either you're the winch operator or you're the the radio control man. And that's why I think it's quite affordable. Also in Germany, you need to to start that hobby. Right. Same. That's almost the same with my gliding club here in Canada. That's the same thing. We have regular duties. You come fly the tow plane. You instruct. All yeah. the things that need to happen to keep the costs down and the and the club uh, operating. So, yeah, yeah, that's the same here. But it's not all all in all over Europe the same. So, right, there's some commercial operations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Finally, what what's the best thing about your gliding club? The best thing, the the, the camaraderie. I think. Well, in my club, I I love, of course, because I grew up in that club and I know them since many years. And uh, my daughter now also took took up gliding, and she's now the third generation in my family who are keen. That is quite nice. Oh, that's lovely. And my club does a lot. Of, yeah, my club does a lot of um, how do you call that stages? So they go to different airports and just spend time and do flying there, and also for instructing. Hmm. So that is also quite nice. Lovely. So we move to other airports with the whole club well Katrin thank, thank you very much for telling me about your gliding club and uh, the, the next time I'm turning around Europe uh, I will hopefully stop in and have a flight so thank you you're more than welcome bye bye <laughs> just join bye Katrin Senna spoke to me from Edlingen, Germany her home club is Flugsportverein Sindelfingen to find out more Google FSV Sindelfingen That's F-S-V-S-I-N-D-E-L-F-I-N-G-E-N. I will also put up a link on the Thermals Facebook page.
Eric Raymond is president and founder of a company called Solar Flight and has been at the cutting edge of solar-powered flight for decades. His latest project is a solar-powered motor glider called the Sunseeker. The Sunseeker is a beautiful two-seat solar-powered aircraft with a 22-meter wingspan and a glide ratio of 38 to 1. Check out the Thermal's Facebook page for photos and links. I've reached Eric Raymond in San Francisco, California. This interview was recorded prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, Erica. Welcome to The Thermal. Oh, thank you. Now, when I see photos of your latest project, The Sunseeker, I see a motor glider with a 38 to 1 glider ratio. Others see a single-engine aircraft. What is it? It's meant to be a touring motor glider, and I think it's superior to anything else because we have absolutely no worries about starting the engine and there's no warm-up or cool down i i'll often take off and you know when i hit the first thermal i just shut the motor off the propeller folds and if the thermal doesn't work out i just you know flip the switch and turn the you know push the throttle and you know there'll be three or four times i can start the motor as many times as i want just to try to catch on to the soaring and then Normally when, you know, we'll be climbing up to cloud base eventually, and once we reach cloud base, we often just start the motor again because during the soaring, solar panels have been charging the batteries, and we climb up over the clouds, and once we're over the clouds, we're in clear, bright sunshine, the air is perfectly smooth, we can have our lunch and enjoy the view, I mean, the plane flies hands off, so, and uh, the solar power at 10,000 feet, for example, is always enough in the summertime to just fly level. So we can wow. just fly for hours and hours on the direct solar power. Can you describe the aircraft? Many of the listeners here haven't seen a photograph of it. Can you describe huh. it to me? Well, um, the two-seater I'm describing is it's actually I use the STEMI molds to make the fuselage. So if you're familiar with the STEMI, it's a two-seat side-by-side motor glider. The original STEMI has the propeller on the nose, a rather small folding propeller, but um, I didn't want the um, noise from the propeller anywhere near the cockpit, and we need a large diameter propeller anyway for efficiency, so it's back on the top of the T-tail. It's just in front of the, the tail, and Describing the plane a little more, plane a little more. I, I stretched the cockpit section so that the both seats can recline all the way back, so you can actually sleep in it. Hmm. But you, the rudder pedals go further forward and the seats go further back, and they recline completely horizontally, so you can actually take a nap and lie down. And it's, right it's... between the two seats. Um, is a ballistic parachute system that's attached to the wing spar and fuselage main structure. So we don't actually wear parachutes in it. The whole Great. A nice extra layer of safety there. Yep. And the STEMI is a, a tail dragger with retractable main gear. I, um, having I, My single-seater was a tail dragger, and I often had crosswind problems and even had some some ground loops and crosswinds, so I decided on a fully retractable tricycle landing gear, which is uh, 
because of a lot of the sensitive electronics on board, I wanted it um, fully sprung landing gear. Mm-hmm. Um, there's proper uh, shock absorbers, high throw. We've taken off and landed on grass and hydraulic brakes. And I, I think that's important for an electric aircraft. Um, a friend of mine in Slovenia, Lukas Niedersnitsch, has made um, this front electric sustainer. I'm sure you've seen that um, very good little folding propeller on the nose. Yep. And they've been adapting conventional sailplanes, which often um, they, they don't have much suspension on the landing gear. And um, I there's been twice that after landing, you know, sometimes sailplane landings can be a bit bumpy. Um, they've actually caught fire, and I think the batteries are getting jostled too much. Um, so it looks so having your like, fully sprung landing gear system will will absorb some of that and, and keep the batteries where they're supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. When you you know normal gliders, I mean, they basically have no electrical system at all, other than the instruments. And when you have um, my airplane is um, it. It's actually 360 volts, which is a pretty high voltage DC, and you know it. It, uh, it could be dangerous if uh, if it got uh, you know banged around too much. So now it, it's a one-off at the moment, right? That's correct. Um, it's uh, I hope to get it in production, but um, there doesn't seem to be any interest or market for it so really no interest or market for it well um it's it most sailplane pilots seem to be interested in competition and that's you know the main part of the sport that everyone heads towards so this really isn't meant to be a competition machine it's it's relatively slow the best glide angle is only at about 40 knots so um, I mean sailplane pilots I've taken a lot of them up and they enjoy flying in it but as far as cross country speeds it's not competitive by any stretch of the imagination but it would still be a good trainer it's got all sorts of other pluses that uh, would work in today's uh, climate of of being greener and, and all that kind of thing yes yeah, it's it's an excellent trainer, and one of the reasons I picked this particular airport where we're based is there's no landing fees, and we just do uh, pattern flights all day long. There's enough there's enough energy coming into the solar panels while we're you know um, gliding down that we're able to just fly as many flights as we want. And where are you based? Any fuel in. We're halfway between Milan and Genoa. Right. At, uh, it's an airport called Voghera, and uh, there's a nice glider port there. Uh, yeah, a glider club there. And, yeah, we're starting in um, April. We're offering uh, rides and lessons to anyone that wants to come, uh, including full packages with airport pickup and uh, accommodations in a friend's uh, bed Just- and breakfast. To, to get to be able to fly in a, in a solar-powered aircraft. Yes. We've got about a 200-pound weight limit, but I've actually taken people as heavy as 245 pounds. So if someone really wants to come, I could make exceptions. 
oh. as long as it's not too turbulent. What's the durability of the of the solar cells? I mean, I've seen the photographs. It looks gorgeous. The whole top wing, of course, is covered in these panels. How long do they last? Well, the solar cells themselves are very durable. Um, we've had more problems with the interconnections because of uh, wing flex and thermal cycling. When when the wing heats up and cools down, the gaps between the solar cells change, and that causes metal fatigue on the interconnects between the cells. Mm-hmm. And I've had to do some repairs that have made the wing less waterproof, so... We try not to fly it when it's uh, raining or leave it out for a lot of morning dew, for example. But um, it's I, I, there's an, I'd really like to uh, replace the entire upper skin right now because I have better stress-relieved interconnects that um, won't crack because, the, yeah, there's nothing wrong with the solar cells or the materials they're encapsulated in. It's just... The weak point has been the interconnects. Now, I read somewhere on your website that it's also designed to be put into a trailer. Is that right? Yeah, we have a Cobra trailer for it, but uh, we don't do that often because there's a lot of you know electrical connections and, and everything. Yeah, it's um, it's actually a five-piece wing. Um, I it was meant to be a three-piece wing, but we couldn't uh, decide on the dihedral angle out at the wingtips it's got polyhedral like some model airplanes Mm -hmm. and so i actually made the the tip panel adjustable in dihedral um i was using the molds from another solar powered airplane from the university stuttgart and they had um 12 degrees of dihedral on their tips you know quite a lot like like an antique model airplane and I started with that, but I tuned it down, and I'm now only at three degrees, and that's uh, you know better better performance, of course, to have less you know kink in the wing, and it's it handles just fine. So now, is it a certified good. aircraft? How do you um, is it experimental? How do you what's it certified as? It's certified as experimental amateur built. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to call it home built because I don't consider myself an amateur after I've been doing this all my life, but that's the category. Right. That's interesting. So in theory, somebody could buy the design from you and make it uh, mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not that easy, but in theory, yes, that's correct. Now, what did it cost you roughly to, to build this aircraft? Hmm. Well, um, not including our time, maybe eighty thousand, ninety thousand dollars. Right, double saying. double that for your time at least. I would imagine. Mm, depends on, yeah, yeah, how you value my time. That's so be that's right. Far more than that. <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I love the look but, of the um, glide. It's, the- it's it's hard. It's um, it's it's hard to quantify that because of these major contributions by uh, the STEMI company that mm. let me use their molds. Right. I mean, I didn't have to develop my own fuselage shape, so that was very helpful. So, how long did it take you to build it? Um, four years, but um, there was you know vacations in between. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to get a flight in at some point. I do find it fascinating, and I think that's the the way of the future. 
you've been in this game for quite a while, the, the whole solar flight part of things. Where, where do you see solar-powered aircraft going into the future? Well, um, I, I still think of it as an electric aircraft, uh, and people try to draw a line between solar and electric. And the only reason we went with the solar panels is batteries were not a realistic option when I started in 1986, and battery development has come a long way. So for a lot of missions, um, you don't need the solar panels. Um, the batteries are you know, continuing, continuing to advance. Um, on the other hand, um, that's not to say you couldn't take a high-performance sailplane uh, and make absolutely no compromises to the design and still have some solar panels that, while you're soaring, will recharge your battery. And if you land at some, you know, distant airport, you can still um, charge yourself up um, and get out of there because there are some pure electric motor gliders. One is named the E-Genius, also mm -hmm. from University of Stuttgart, and it's made some cross-country flights, but it has a big, heavy charger that needs to follow it on the ground, and we had it in the United States. I actually uh, was the team leader and pilot flying that airplane in nasa's green flight challenge are you familiar with that event i've read something about that in the past yeah yeah and the the united coming bringing that airplane here from europe uh was a bit of a letdown because there's only mostly 110 volts in the united states right um and to charge a powerful electric aircraft off of 110 volt extension cord just doesn't work and even the 220 volts is meager compared to in europe um they have um 380 volts for like you know your clothes dryer and kitchen things like that so the european power grid is better suited but still um since every airport doesn't have a charger for an airplane right that's not yet <laughs> one thing and it's, it's the same thing with the cars until tesla got their supercharging stations going you know teslas weren't that useful Maybe we need to get Mr. Musk uh, interested in your aircraft. That would be great. Eric, listen, what keeps you uh, so passionate about, about solar flight and all the things that come with it? What keeps you going? Well, um, it's certainly the enthusiastic uh, um, responses from people that go flying with me because um, my wife, who's also a, a glider pilot, she's um, she's become spoiled to flying in regular sailplanes also because, you know, they don't have the luxury of the electric motor. Um, so we, you know, we both like flying gliders, but we want to have the um, electric uh, self-launch option there at our fingertips. So I just... You know, I've been watching what's going on with all of the, you know, electric vertical takeoff, electric aircraft, and um, I still think um, people would be, you know, a lot happier just being able to uh, shut the motor off and glide. That's actually my favorite part, even though it's an electric aircraft. Right. I prefer to have the motor off, even though we can barely hear it. You know, we don't need um, headsets. I forgot to mention that. It's it's so quiet in the cockpit that um, you can't hear the motor at all. You just hear the swish of the propeller a little bit. But um, just being able to, you know, fly a powered aircraft that um, isn't noisy. 
Well, Eric, it's it's been uh, a real pleasure talking to you about the Sunseeker. I do hope to see it at some point uh, in my travels in Europe. I'll make sure I, I pop around and, and try to get up for a flight. So thank you very much for talking to me about it. All right. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Eric Raymond, president and founder of Solar Flight, spoke to me from San Francisco, California. For photos and more information, go to www.solarflight.com. That's www.solarflight.com. March 2020 marks the 75th anniversary of Operation Varsity, the crossing of the Rhine. It's the last time World War II combat gliders were used. Allied glider operations during the war included the invasion of Sicily, D-Day, Arnhem, and Operation Varsity. Thousands of American and British gliders were used in these operations, and the men who flew the tugs and gliders are some of the unsung heroes of World War II. Retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Mark Vlahos is passionate about history and, in particular, American combat glider operations during World War II. He has written Men Will Come, a history of the 314th Troop Carrier Group, 1942-1945. I've reached Mark at his home in New Braunfels, Texas. This interview was recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic became real. Hello, Mark, and thanks for coming on the Thermal Podcast. Thank you, Harry. It's great to be here tonight. So, the 314th Troop Carrier Group... Talk to me about this unit's role in combat glider operations during World War II. What did they actually do? Well, sure. Obviously, uh, troop carrier group will be the uh, the key link for everybody. But, uh, you know, the, the big change in World War II in aircraft and airplanes, air power, was the, uh, the big change in World War II. It added a, a third dimension on the battlefield. So there were many mission sets, you know, fighter, bomber, and transport uh, evolved uh, Troop carrier groups were essentially transport in the transport category, but they were tied to the newly developed airborne mission, which included a glider tow and glider tow operations. Right, right. And how big was this unit, this 314th troop carrier group? How many planes are we talking about? Sure, you're talking about uh, uh, four squadrons with about 16 aircraft in each squadron. Uh, they actually went up to about 24 aircraft in each squadron about D-Day. So you're talking, you know, 92 aircraft uh, around the D-Day time frame. So are we talking combination tow planes and gliders here? Yeah, that was just C-47s. Now, there were approximately, when the when they shipped overseas in May of 1943, there were about uh, 20 glider pilots assigned to each squadron. Mm-hmm. And uh, in doctrine, you know, the glider pilots were actually part of the uh, – Troop uh, carrier squadrons and groups, they were embedded in the troop carrier squadrons. So there are about 20 in each. But then uh, by the time market came about in varsity, 1944-45, there were actually about 50 glider pilots in each squadron. So the 314th had about 200 glider pilots huh. at the time in 1944. Now, at, at what point in World War II did the American military, or I guess the Allies, decide that the they needed glider combat units that were, I guess the equivalent of today's combat helicopters. Sure. Yeah, the, uh, you know, the Germans were actually the first one to employ the glider in combat in World War II. And like many things, you know, we, we had to play catch up. You know, they were really good at developing uh, weapon systems and tactics, you know, and they had superior equipment in a lot of ways. 
and you know we were playing catch up. So it was really the uh, the German invasion of Crete, which was in May of 1941. That that after that the Allies decided that you know we're going to go full bore. We need this capability. And when mm-hmm. I say Allies, I mean British and Americans, Canadians. Uh, we need this capability. So we were playing catch up. So it wasn't until 1941, you know, that we really went full bore and, and started the, the glider uh, capability, added that to our uh, our military doctrine. Now, talk to me about this particular American glider that was the, the backbone. The Is it Waco or Waco? What do we say? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, the easiest way to remember the correct, correct pronunciation is to think if you're eating a taco. So it's Waco. Actually, Waco, Waco okay. is, the, is the correct pronunciation. Weaver, short for Weaver Aircraft Company. Okay. So talk to me about these aircraft, these gliders. Yeah, it was uh, obviously the it was the mainstay of the American uh, glider force. Approximately 13,900 were manufactured during the war by 16 different companies. And about 8,500 thir- actually. 13,000. 13,900 manufactured. Yeah, that's quite a number. That's got to be the most mass-produced glider ever, I would think. I, I, don't, I can't think of any civilian gliders that have reached that number, but uh, I'm sure somebody will bring us up to speed on that. Yeah, yeah. It was a, the, the uh, designation was the CG-4A mm-hmm. Waco glider. And they were designed to take, what, 20 soldiers or a Jeep and a couple soldiers, that kind of thing? Yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly correct. 13 combat-equipped glider men uh, and a, uh, a 75-millimeter howitzer. Or it could carry a jeep in the in the crew for that. It couldn't carry both a jeep and the howitzer, uh, so you had they had to be on separate gliders and actually marred up on the ground, you know, to be right. mobile afterwards. And the the tow plane was the the, the civilian DC three, the military C forty seven Goonie Bird, same thing, right? That, that's correct. The C forty seven in our doctrine was the mainstay of troop carrier operations and, and glider tow. Mm-hmm. The, the, the British actually used the C-47. They called it the Dakota. But but also the British used their bomber aircraft to tow gliders as well. You'll see uh, the horse uh, the, was towed actually by the, the Halifaxes and the Albemarles. Right, right, right. I've, I've seen uh, images of that. So the, this unit, the 314th Troop Carrier Group, they ship out to, to England in, what, 1942, I guess? No, actually, they, they left the states in May of 1943, and they went to landed at Casablanca. They went to North Africa first. Okay, okay. And so they were part of the invasion of Sicily, so Operation Husky, mm-hmm. in, in, and that was obviously in July of 1943. So that was their first combat mission. Now, I've I've read some other books about the the invasion of Sicily and the glider units. I've read some controversial reports about some of these British gliders being let go far out to sea, and it was a bit of a shambles, a bit of a, a terrible outcome for many of these gliders. Yeah, you're 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 exactly correct, uh, Harry. And by the way, this would be a great topic for a panel of experts, you know, on another podcast in the future. But it, it was the first major Allied airborne mission of the war, obviously, uh, for both the British uh, and the Americans. And many things did, did not go well uh, in the two British glider missions that were part of Operation Husky were, were near disastrous for the Allies. And uh, I won't go into too much detail, but uh, I just want to say this for morale purposes. There were other things that went wrong in Operation Husky as well. Uh, and we kept this uh, secret from the public for about a year, you know, just because it was it was that bad. And, right. And there were 
on top of those 69 British gliders, you know, falling into the sea, you know, and causing nearly 300 casualties, uh, 23 C-47s were also shot down by the U.S. Navy in, in Husky. So wow. a lot of, lot of bad things happened, a lot of lessons learned and uh, that eventually we studied and recovered from. But that was a combination thing, right? So most of the tow planes were, were, or the C-47s were being flown by Americans, and the, yeah. the gliders were British glider pilot regiment guys, right? Yeah, yeah, you're correct. In, in Operation Husky, it, there was no American, strictly American glider tow. There was two British operations, uh, British pilots towed by mainly the uh, C-47s, American troop carrier crews, but... Uh, uh, you know, a lot of it was due to the uh, the training level of the troop carrier crews. Uh, you know, they they uh, specifically in the areas of night formation flying, navigation, and glider tow. You know, they were minimally, barely, you know, experienced, and you know, this was their first combat mission. So these are all twenty year old guys. Yeah, I- exactly. Right. I mean, out of, can you right think of a millennial? You know, training. twenty year old also, nowadays wouldn't. You know, they they can barely tie their shoelaces. They're living in mom's basement. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. But also the, uh, you know, the British were short on gliders, so they used a lot of the American Wacos, and the British glider pilots had never flown the Waco before, and they only had about four, four to five hours of flight right. time in the Waco before before they flew that combat mission. Right. So some of them had had maybe one or two landings in the in the Waco yeah. when they're used to horse or gliders. Yeah, exactly. They they averaged probably about fifteen landings, but maybe one hour of night flight, and it was a night mission, you know. Right. And it's right. just a, uh, but just the the coordination, the training, uh, you know, it was just a, uh, it was a rushed operation. Hey, and, I can't. Uh, I'm a glider pilot. I can't imagine doing toes at night in the dark, trying to stay behind your your tow plane, and uh, that's pretty, you know, technical flying. Yeah, it's amazing when they and think about it. They they. They took off out of North Africa, so there's so much dust. You think about the airfields were just, you know, in the desert there. And takeoff roll, think about this, Harry. You're in the glider behind your tow plane. You're kicking up so much dust, you can't even see your tow plane right. on takeoff roll. You know, right. it's just amazing some of the footage when you look at it. Yeah, yeah. Dangerous. Indeed. So these uh, pilots that belong to the 314th Troop Carrier Group, Give me a, a profile of one of these young glider pilots. What was their average background training? Where do they come from? That kind of thing. Sure. You know, but I'll just, you know, if I can have one point resonate tonight, you know, the American glider pilot wings had a G on them. Uh, I tend to think that stood for guts. And think about that. You know, the uh, the guts to try with what these men did, you know, flying those unarmed unarmored aircraft, you know, unpowered behind enemy lines, landing at night. Uh, they, they were they were a sturdy breed, I'll tell you that, fearless. Uh, they were, like you said, 20-year-old kids. They, they went through flight training. Uh, many of them actually tested to be power pilots. Uh, some of them uh, didn't make it completely through power pilot school. They went to uh, glider training. Other ones went directly to glider training because they te- – they had to have an aptitude to fly for one, yep. and, and there was they went most of the various training locations around the states. the uh, The main uh, uh, glider school was actually in, in Lubbock, Texas, actually at the uh, Southwest Plains uh, Glider School there. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying. There's probably how many in each class. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. I don't want to give a bad answer. I'd have to get back to you on that. But uh, we produced there were about about eight thousand glider pilots were 
were produced during World War II, trained in, in given wings in the U.S. Wow. During World War II. Now, these these young glider pilots, what was a typical mission like for them? And using D-Day as an example, put put me in the cockpit with, with one of these uh, pilots. Sure. And this is this is actually fun. If you can just imagine a carnival ride, you're, you're sitting still in a chair. And all of a sudden, within a few seconds, you're going 100 miles per hour. You're just from a sudden stop to 100 miles per hour, and uh, and you're trying to keep a steady platform. You hook to a tow rope to a C-47. Obviously, it's got props turning. Uh, there, there's wake turbulence going on and uh, during the takeoff roll. But then just think about once you get up to altitude and you're starting the formation, think about the, the noise and the uh, turbulence from hundreds and hundreds of C-47s you're trying to, to uh, join the formation. Yeah, the sky must then, be black with aircraft. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just absolutely, when you look at the size of these uh, packages that they put up in the air, on D-Day, you know, the, the sky trains, it took five hours, you know. A sky train entire, is another word for C-47, right, or another name? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, the sky train. Yeah, the C-47 sky train, Goonie Bird, and... and uh, is that what you asked? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Was it called a Skytrain because it towed gliders? Yeah. Well, the yeah, the C-47, the Skytrain was the nickname for the C-47. Uh, its sister, close relative, the C-53, was the Skytrooper. Okay. And uh, they looked very similar. Most people, a lot of people confused the two aircraft. But, yeah, just hundreds of those and D-Day, you know, just amazing. And just imagine being in one of those gliders. You're trying to fly formation, you know, in, in tow there. And, uh you cross the coastline, you're coasting in on France, and then all of a sudden the pucker factors up because they know you're coming, and you know, you're receiving fire, and uh, just uh, you get cut away, and then it becomes And you get cut away because, low, right? Yeah, yeah, low, low, low release, probably altitude anywhere, probably about 1,200 feet to uh, 2,000 feet was most of your glider operation release altitudes. Mm-hmm. And then it's straight into a field somewhere. Yeah, they sometimes they would do a uh, a teardrop uh, or 270 degree turn approach, you know, or sometimes a glider release was, you know, the visibility you, you couldn't really see well. And well, D-Day they landed the gliders landed at night, you know. Later in the war, we we went to daylight operations, but imagine landing at night and you you can't see the obstacles, the the, the ditches, the stone walls, you know, the fences, the buildings, trees, just so, crazy. So these men, you know. They, they they were fearless. So what happened? To, so the the glider. Let's say that you successfully put the glider down in the field. You're in enemy territory. The 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 soldiers get out. They start doing what they're supposed to do. What what do the glider pilots do? You know that's 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 a great question that uh, we really didn't have a good answer for. I hate to say it, but uh, the glider pilots at first were mainly they were just left on their own. They had a minimum amount of infantry training. Uh, they weren't part of the the army uh, chain of command or force structure that they carried, you know, the airborne troops they carried. So they were kind of just stuck out there. They were given duties, typically, like to guard prisoners or, or guard around the command post. But eventually, the glider pilots were trained and told to work your way back home hmm. through enemy lines, link up with friendly lines, and hitchhike a ride back to your airfield to fly another day. Now, the, Crazy. these gliders as well, what were they disposable did they do anything with them what happened well 
sadly, as you know, a lot of them, you know, were cracked up upon landing. But no, they are actually. Uh, there are many accounts uh, after uh, Market Garden. There were about uh, 200 gliders, you know, that were recovered, and actually, the the C40. Some of the C47s were modified, you know, with a snatch. They called it a snatch. Uh, a tow thing where they could hook up and reel them in and pick them up from a standstill on the ground. Oh, I've so seen Im- images of that. I'll put something up on the Facebook page. There's, a, there's footage out there of that. Yeah, it's great. And y- they could be repaired. Obviously, if they were, you know, they would be inspected. And if there wasn't too much damage, they would typically send a, re- a repair team in. You know, the glider mechanics were trained in this patchwork and mm-hmm. make sure the flight controls work. And, and they were, uh, if possible, they were brought back, reused. Now, what were the casualties? You said something like 8,000 uh, glider pilots were trained in the U.S. for the war. What was the casualty rate among these guys? Was it worse than bomber pilots or better? What kind of uh, well, casualty you know, rate? In, in the, we always, in, in, a, in an airborne operation, they would factor in a 20% casualty rate for glider pilots. So that's, that's fairly significant. Probably not as high up there as uh, with the bomber pilots, mm-hmm. the bomber crews, I should say. Right. But but twenty uh, percent that's that's to me a fairly high significant factor. Right. So from your point of view, World War II glider combat operations from an Allied point of view, you've studied it. You've looked at this particular three hundred fourteenth troop carrier group. Could it was it considered a success despite the high losses? Well, you know, for a military operation to be judged successful, you have to look if you achieved your objective. You know, that's that's how we look at it. Mm-hmm. from a military mind here guy here and uh when you actually look at it most of the nearly every airborne operation achieve their objectives despite the losses okay the only the only one i could really think about is you know that stands out obviously is the british at arnhem you mm-hmm. know they uh i wouldn't call that a successful operation by any means but uh but that was different reasons yeah different reasons you know they well they they were supposed to capture a bridge. They were on one end of it. You know, they didn't capture the bridge, yep, you know, yep. but uh, they, they captured one end of the bridge until they were forced to, re, you know, cross the river. But uh, mo- when you look at the after action reports, you know, they airborne paratroopers and glider men achieve their objectives, usually within 24 hours or a few days. Sometimes it took longer to link up, but they achieve their mission objectives. And hmm. to me, that's a successful operation. Now, out of these 8,000 pilots that were trained during the war, there can't be that many left anymore. Have you, have you met some of them? I, I have actually met a couple, yes, at the uh, at the glider pilot, the World War II Glider Pilot Association, which I belong to. I went to the reunion last year. There was one fellow there. I actually have one that lives about uh, 20 minutes from me. I interviewed on the phone for my book. I wanted to meet him in person, but it didn't didn't work out well. But uh, – but, uh, yeah, there's, I don't know how many are left alive, but there's a few. But obviously, all our World War II vets are, are a rare treasure indeed if they're still alive. Yeah, yeah. So what what led you to write this uh, this this book, this highly detailed history book about this uh, troop carrier group? Yeah, it's, you know, it was a calling for me because in my military career, which I served for 29 years, I flew with three of the four original squadrons. Mm-hmm. So it, in, in 1980s and 1990s, there's still a lot of these veterans still alive, and I actually met a lot of them at squadron reunions, and I listened to their stories, you know, and I just wish one of them would have wrote the book because they have done a far better job than me. Right. But uh, roll the tape ahead till two years ago, um, I got asked on the 75th uh, anniversary of the founding of the squadron to come back and be the guest speaker, 
And uh, just doing my research for that 30-minute talk, I realized that there was no book out there on the 314th Troop Carrier Group. And uh, and I collected so much stuff for this 30-minute talk, I just decided to go ahead and write the book, you know, to honor them, uh, to write it for their sons and daughters and grandchildren so this story in history wouldn't be lost. Well, good for you because I've, I've read it and I'm interested in World War II history, specifically the combat gliding operations. And uh, anybody who's got an interest in this will, will enjoy your book. So uh, they should go and get it. And I'll put out a, a, a link on the, on the Facebook page. So my kind of last question for you, you know, there are tons of DC-3, C-47s still flying all over the world. But, you know, there are Waco, sorry, rhymes with taco, Waco <laughs> gliders uh, in museums all over the place. But I don't think there are any flying, are there? No, I wish, sadly, there aren't. Uh, and they're rare indeed, uh, the few that are in museums uh, to be seen. I, I've seen one at the Fort Bragg Museum, the uh, Army Museum there, and then at the uh, the glider, the Silent Wings Museum in Lubbock, Texas, uh, has a great display. Mm-hmm. But uh, gliders were only used, you know, about 12 years in the American military. And as you mentioned earlier, were replaced by the helicopter on the battlefield. Right, right. So they were turned into chicken coops and dismantled and burned and whatever. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, it's aluminum uh, and fabric. You know, the fabric probably uh, decayed, you know, wasn't in, you know, just right. like a lot of the aircraft after World War II. They were, yeah, just destroyed. Well, Mark, listen, it's been a, a real pleasure speaking to you uh, about your book and the research that you did on these glider pilots and and the role they played. So thank you very much, and uh, good luck with the book. Hey, I, I appreciate it, Harry, and thanks for reaching out to me. I, I enjoyed our chat tonight. Okay. Take care. Good night. Bye-bye. Mark Vlahos spoke to me from his home in New Braunfels, Texas. Men Will Come, a history of the 314th Troop Carrier Group, 1942 to 1945, is available at www.lulu.com. That's www.lulu.com. That's it for episode number 11 of The Thermal. I will be back again in early May with another show that will include an interview about lessons learned from a pilot who actually bailed out and lived to tell the tale. We will also look at tow plane upsets and what the British Gliding Association is doing about it. Before I go, just a quick mention about a lovely young woman that was lost in a tragic car accident in Florida. Catherine Eaglin was much loved and was often found running the launch grid at various contests. In particular, she was a fixture at the Seniors' Contest that's held every year at Seminole Lake, Florida. I had the pleasure of watching her organize a small army of volunteers during the launch phase of last summer's Pan Am Gliding Championships held here at the Southern Ontario CERN Association. Every time I taxied up to the line in one of the tow planes, she was there, making everything run like a Swiss watch. She came up to Canada for two weeks and made many, many friends. Catherine was just that kind of person. She will be sorely missed. The Thermal will continue to publish during the Corona-19 pandemic. I've got a number of great interviews coming up, so make sure you tune in and let your fellow glider pilots know about the podcast as well. Finally, if you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast 
at gmail.com. I'm Harry Tenkate. Thanks for centering the Thermal Podcast. Remember, wash your hands, self-isolate, and keep an eye out for the vulnerable members of society. See you next time. Stay safe.